Gresham College presents The Non-Executive Director by Daniel Hudson, Emeritus Gresham Professor of Commerce. And I'm just going to begin by re-emphasizing some relevant points that I made in my first lecture without going over the debate again. Indeed, I believe that in the general discussion that followed the lecture, these points represented the consensus of guests and those of the audience who participated. It is, however, important to add that these are guidelines and not hard and fast rules, for the circumstances and purpose of the organization will vary. They are most appropriate for mature, quoted PLCs, but they have relevance to every organization, PLC, cooperative, public sector, charitable, or otherwise not-for-profit, which has a board of directors, of trustees, or governors. But I shall, for ease, refer to the latter as directors. And the points are, boards should concentrate almost exclusively on strategic matters and making sure that the right people are in place to carry out their decisions. Boards should regularly review their own performance and their members, including the chairman. The performance of NED should be appraised just like any other member of management. The board should regularly review its own governance procedures and stick to the ground rules it sets itself. Boards board should never exceed 12 in number, with balanced numbers of non-execs and executives, with an optimum around 8. NED should bring specific and useful skills to the table. And the overriding duty of the board, apart from statutory requirements, is to look after the interest of the shareholders. Benefiting stakeholders supports this objective, but is not sovereign in its own right. And I'm going to weave these, remark, these, these points into my remarks, but I'm going to focus first on the role itself. It's vital to realize that in one very important respect, all directors are equal, and that qualifications to the office of director, non-executive or executive, independent or non-independent, are not relevant to the central functions of the position always to act in the best interest of the company and the shareholders. And this leads me to a major theme of this lecture, and one upon which the spotlight rarely falls. A director's responsibility is not just a byproduct of the emergence of the capitalist system and the accompanying rise of the joint stock company. There is a genuine requirement for objectivity, and when required of selflessness, implied in leaving personal interests behind. It could even be said that there is an element of public service in the role of a director or of, any, of anything other than a closely held, relatively small, private company. And it is this requirement of objectivity that is, frankly, the most breached of all such rules. In most cases, it happens behind closed doors and often in the bosom and mind of the director. But in so many cases, it is plain for all to see. The best and most and an endemic example is that of corporate mergers or takeovers, where at one extreme it is plain that they failed quite simply because of ego, because the personal interests the respective chairman, CEOs, directors, have prevented board uh, and executive structures, which would have been in the best interests of combined shareholders. At the other extreme, such mergers and takeovers have actually taken place in profusion because of the ambition of one or more people, and well beyond the rational interest of shareholders. And I've often heard it argued in defense of these situations that such mergers are indeed about people. And there are even instances of mega-million takeovers supposedly instigated to acquire the talents of just one individual. Even at today's levels of, corporate, of executive remuneration, 
It is hard to see, I speak ironically, it is hard to see how it is not cheaper merely to go out and hire the paragon. But at the end of the day, it is the strategic rationale, regardless of the individuals in the boxes in the organization chart, that must be paramount. If the rationale is faulty, the results will be unpredictable and shareholder value potentially diminished, however talented the participants. The principle behind this is that the corporation is more, is more powerful than the individual. It is for this reason, as much as any other, that the notion of a so-called independent non-executive director has arisen, one who is as far as possible likely to be untouched by conflicts created by executive position, by specific shareholder interests, or by a personal shareholding, one who is most likely to be objective in his judgment. Given human frailty, it is a notion that I support, and it is on the role of this individual that I shall concentrate. Some special interest groups pursue vociferously and indeed pester boards with the assertion that an NED who has served more than two terms of three years is no longer independent. The argument seems to be that they will have in some way grown too close to the management or to avoid, to use a very, or to avoid a very un-PC term, have in some way sided with the indigenous population. In contrast, I have served on boards where, if anything, the longer serving the serving, but putatively no longer independent directors, have grown more far-sighted and objective as time has gone by. The proposition ignores continuity, industry knowledge, and indeed the natural accretion of wisdom that comes with age and experience. But it does recognise, in my mind correctly, that the affluxion of time may cause individual NEDs to lose their edge, that some may indeed have begun to camp in the executive kraal, and perhaps most importantly, that there is always a need for reinvigoration and stimulus of fresh eyes and new vision created by a slow but steady turnover of NEDs. There's also a need for a better mechanism than automatic rebranding of such directors. In my immediately previous lecture, I argued that the continued employment of chairman and CEOs should be reviewed more often and more rigorously after five and four years respectively. I would submit that a better approach to long-serving in independent NEDs is not to rebrand them, but to subject them to tactful, discreet, but firm re review on at least a biannual, let's say every two years, basis. And although this is entirely a matter of subjective judgment, commencing at the point at which the company and they would be committing to a third term, the review could be undertaken by a combination of the senior NED, an appointment which I regard as critical, and the chairman, unless it were the review of either of the latter themselves. It may seem at first to be an embarrassing and personally challenging process, but if all concerned understood that it was to take place from the outset, it would become acceptable. It is understood and correct that the representative of, or the personal holder of, a substantial block of shares will usually be sufficiently conflicted not to be considered independent. There is, extending this notion to its ultimate limit, a school of thought which suggests that any shareholding at all creates a conflict and reduces objectivity. I think that there is a degree of logic and merit in this argument, but against it is the fact that, generally speaking, institutional investors like to see a financial commitment to the company in the form of a shareholding from all directors, and it does send a message also to the company and its employees themselves. 
The personal financial position of NEDs is no doubt extremely varied, and the sum of, say, £100,000 may be a very significant amount to some, but as it were, a groat to others. The approach that I would suggest is that NEDs should certainly take a shareholding, but it should never be so high as to be a meaningful part of their personal net worth, sufficient to cloud the object objectivity of their judgment. As a rule, say 10%. There is an interesting and increasingly common conflict with this proposal, which arises in the context of higher-risk ventures. The latter may, prior to initial public offering, or quote, IPO, issue NEDs with shares and options to conserve cash and give the NED a stake, a share in the upside for taking the risk of associating his name with the business and because of the presumably high quality and greatly needed advice that he will provide. This in itself may not give rise after IPO to the suggestion uh, that the beneficiary has, a, has as a consequence lost his independence unless the resulting holding or potential holding as a result of option exercise is significant in relation to the actual potential issued capital, or again represents a significant part of the NED's net worth, as in many cases it may. I certainly do not believe that issuing options to NEDs post-IPO is appropriate. Such options are now the norm for executives awarded for achievement, and increasingly with exercise dependent on further achievement. The tests are rigorous and generally relate to targets set objectively by the board. They're intended as both an incentive and a share in the wealth putatively being created by the executive. There are, in my mind, three major reasons why such remuneration should not be offered to independent NEDs. First, as the independent members of the board, they should be able to take an objective view of the appropriate targets and relative performance of their executive colleagues. They are obviously conflicted if they too are beneficiaries. Second, they should not need such an incentive being appropriately paid for the job that they do. And in many cases, giving them significant levels of options may breach the concept that their interest in the relevant company should not become too high a part of their personal net worth. It is also clear that NEDs who sit on boards as the nominees of large shareholders can be potentially prone to tussles with objectivity, and therefore indubitably not candidates for independent directorships. It would be almost superhuman, although it is a feat that miraculously occasionally is performed, for them to return to base and say that they voted against the interest of the nominating shareholder because they felt it to the general benefit of the company and the shareholders as a whole. What is not so obvious is the conflict experienced by directors who are elected to a board, most probably that of a cooperative, whose employers often expect them to stand up for the latter's corner, even if, to the individual director's eyes, it is the wrong direction for the institution. Whilst, when I was at Life, whilst we took some pains to point out to member-elected directors that they had a duty of objectivity, many such directors found their personal conflicts quite intolerable. I'm certain that much of the difficulty we had in gaining a consensus on strategic direction, particularly in respect of electronic trading, was due to those heavy tugs on loyalty and objectivity. What is particularly noteworthy is that whilst I'm certain that a number of my board colleagues could on this account be guilty of a theoretical breach of, of fiduciary duty, I'm equally certain that most, if not all, would not have seen it that way. The lesson to be drawn is that there are many situations, and not just the obvious, prescribed ones, that can lead to loss of independence. But the latter anecdote has a positive side. My then chairman and I saw the problem of lack of board objectivity very early on in my tenure, 
and set about appointing a small number of genuinely independent directors. The process of convincing first the existing board and then the members as a whole took the best part of a year, but we did find two quite outstanding candidates, of whom one is my guest tonight. Sparing his blushes, it is unanimously agreed amongst those who were involved in the events of those times that without their courage, perspicacity and wisdom, we would never have achieved the reforms that have led to the revival and renaissance of the exchange. Certainly my own position and that of my chairmen would have been totally untenable. Their contribution, which must in general remain behind closed doors, was absolutely critical. I now, I now turn to the heart of the role itself. It is to ensure that board making is of the highest quality, that the right executives are in place, and that the shareholders' interests are always paramount, as I noted before. What are the personal requirements for success in the job? Extensive and importantly, up-to-date business and or administrative experience. Maturity and good judgment, together with a dash of steel, independence of mind, courage, a willingness to stand one's ground and be counted when vital principles are at stake. But nonetheless, a team player. All these are given characteristics. To these, I would add a sense of duty, a willingness to give whatever time is necessary in the rare but important corporate circumstances which arise occasionally. The irony is that these virtues, and particularly that of being abreast of modern business thinking and techniques, are most often found in those who are in mid-career with a demanding full-time job elsewhere. There is undoubtedly a time decay factor for older NEDs who are in the afternoons or evenings of their working lives, but who make up a considerable portion of the boards of, for instance, quoted PLCs. There are obviously some very notable exceptions, shrewd and wise, but boards would do regu well regularly to review the positions of NEDs who are for the most part retired or significantly winding down. I well remember sitting <coughs> as an executive on the board of Unigate with a marvellous ex-diplomat who many of you may recall called Sir Connor O'Neill who came unwillingly to fame for standing up to George Brown at his most tired and emotional. I don't really know what his real contribution was apart from the inspiration of what we, the executive, called the Con O'Neill test for board papers which was could they be understood and absorbed by a highly intelligent and non-business-oriented former civil servant? And for his parting words, he was remembered, which were he felt that he had filled a slot and caused no trouble. I've even sat on boards where members have slipped gently into slumber from time to time. Perhaps like this evening, who knows? Not always observing the golden rule that it is best when waking up from a brief ziz to keep the eyes closed pick up the thread of the conversation, and then make a brilliant interjection, eyes still closed, so that colleagues are actually galled into believing that there's worth in the old boy after all. It is, of course, important for NEDs to keep abreast of corporate events, to get to know the senior people, and to understand the industries of companies on whose boards they serve. But it is, in my mind, very important to realise that it is in the first period of their tenure that they will be likely to make the most impact. This requires the ability to undertake a steep learning curve, but it addresses the fact that first impressions are often, also often the most accurate, that fresh eyes can bring new and valuable insights with different minds of bearing from those who are familiar with and integrated into the activities of the company. It also provides the NED with a key once-only opportunity to review for himself 
the governance procedures of the company, the workings of the board and its committees, the style of the chairman and the CEO and the other, the other executive directors, as well as his NED colleagues, and the quality and appropriateness of information and papers which the board receives. It's much more difficult to suggest changes, or at least put down markers, after, say, more than, a, after more than, say, a year in the job, when the NED has become more used to the procedures and has perhaps started himself to have more sympathy with the indigenous population. There is also an important, the contingent element of an NED's responsibilities, which is usually overlooked, and in my mind is potentially the most important part of the NED's service to the company. From time to time, special circumstances will arise which will require extra attention, major takeovers, either as acquire or target, major strategic events such as demergence, failures of strategy requiring drastic reappraisal, management reorganizations leading up to CEO, senior executive changes. It is in the time leading up to and during these events that the experience and judgment of NEDs and their ob objectivity, with company shareholder interest always to the fore, will arguably make their greatest contribution. Indeed, it is as often as not the NEDs themselves who may take a more proactive role and trigger the analysis and discussion which leads to the events themselves. Every NED should be prepared and be in a position to provide his time and wisdom unstintingly at these key extracurricular moments. An NED who is too busy or not paying close enough attention to the institution's affairs is not worthy of his job. Beyond this, a non-executive should be available for advice to the chairman and the, and the executive, not just in general terms, but also in relation to the specific discipline, e.g. IT or marketing, which may be his or her core skill. This can be provided proactively where special, special specific circumstances allow, or reactively when a need arises for the executive board or senior or, or executive board or senior board members. It is often forgotten that NEDs, if properly chosen and functioning effectively, can represent a wealth of knowledge and talent that can add an extra dimension and depth to executive decision-making. It's also important that NED should not attain to executive a role. His principal job is strategic, and his involvement in day-to-day -day operations should be sparing and specific, based on temporary requirements. Aside from his own review, which I described above, it is essential that he takes an active participation in reviewing the senior team. The annual set piece for this will be the remuneration committee, but he should be working with the chairman constantly to evaluate performance on an ad hoc basis and lending help and advice where that would improve the situation. And of course, he must not lose sight of the fact that he has a responsibility to ensure not only that the correct management team is in place, but also that the chairman is up to the job. It is a salutary fact that chairmen tend to resign for underperformance reasons much less often than CEOs. Can it be that they are to that extent on average better than CEOs, or is it that NEDs feel more constrained in taking drastic action against a chairman? What is certain is that the chairman's role is complementary to, but at least as important as that of the CEO. I now want to reintroduce what I see as the public service element of an independent NED's role. It is significant in this context that many senior private sector executives are attracted to public service type jobs, e.g. in public sector or non-profit making institutions, at pay much less than and often a fraction of their existing package. The attractions of the NED role are extensive, 
but they should not be connected with remuneration. And indeed, a very large portion of full-time executive, executives pass their NED fees back to their employers. I certainly did when I was at Life. This and the public service concept argue for fees that are fair, but do not necessarily bear any resemblance to the per diem rate that an executive might command as a consultant in the private sector, as is often argued. It is fantastic to me that the NED of a top 100 company, presumably with a seat on, say, the Audit Committee and Remuneration Committee, can trouser 45 to 50,000 pounds for what is in reality a longish day's work a month, a per diem rate of 4,000 pounds. The fact is that most of these people would be prepared to join such prestigious boards for half the pay, and, in, and many, in effect, do it for nothing, since their companies keep the check. The cynical would be tempted to wonder what the value for money might be, with the seemingly never-ending parade of board-level governance failures. It could be also be argued that significantly lower rewards might put more perspective into the deliberations of remuneration committees, and certainly give them the moral high ground. What is the appropriate level of pay for an NED? Clearly this depends on the size of the company and the likely time commitment, the latter, for instance, being determined by committee requirements such as audit or remuneration, and is usually conceived, as I said before, as a day a month. In my mind, there are three components. Actual time expended under normal circumstances, plus an insurance premium for availability in exceptional circumstances if required, less an element to indicate the public service element of the job. One could argue that the latter offsets the former. People with a caliber to sit on public boards will probably command personal charge-out rates of between 750 and 2,500 pounds per day. And the rate of pay will clearly be determined by the size of the company and or the relative remuneration of its executive directors. Simple arithmetic suggests, therefore, that the going rate for an NED, including some additional time availability if required, should be between 9,000 pounds per annum and 30,000 pounds per annum. Finally, I've often heard it said that it's difficult to find good NEDs. But it's also my experience that many executive members of PLC boards, and indeed of the boards of major subsidiaries of larger corporations, who aspire to one or more or two interesting non-executive jobs outside their roles, outside their current job, who don't necessarily get them. Observably, many would do the job very well, and their wider experience would benefit their employer. Indeed, the more enlightened larger companies have experimented with such placements, although not usually on PLC boards. An often voiced objection is lack of board experience, but that can hardly apply to those already on PLC boards. It's also true that major divisional boards often go about their business considerably more professionally and effective than many PLC holdings boards. I wonder whether the mechanisms for selection, usually network stroke word of mouth, dedicated not-for-profit organizations or headhunters are spreading the net wide enough. It is observably true that many institutions are not fully served by the NEDs, certainly by the demanding standards that I have set out above. I believe that there is a significant and substantial cadre of untapped talent out there which could grace and enhance the proceedings of boards which badly need it. Is it time to review and take a more radical view of the methods of those involved in selection and the population of talent over which they cast their flies. So my main points, and then I shall hand over to my two colleagues for um, a few minutes' comments in each case. 
hopefully on the points which which they disagree rather than the points at which they agree, just to make it more fun. My main points, again, are all directors are equal in their overriding responsibilities to company and shareholders, but independent NED should above all bring objectivity to boardroom discussion and ensure that the right executive team and chairman is in place. NED performance should be reviewed regularly, but two terms should not necessarily be the limit of their tenure, and there should be a focus on those who are retired or winding down. NED should have shareholdings, but not so large in relation to their own net worth as to cloud their judgment. NEDs may be able to receive options pre-IPO in higher expenses, but definitely not in quoted companies. A key responsibility for an NED is to be available for one-off strategic situations and events, regardless of other commitments. An NED is potentially at his most effective during the first year of his first term. There is a public service element to the NED role, and in some cases, NED's pay looks to be on the high side. There is an untapped cadre of potential non-executive talent, particularly executive members of PLC and major divisional boards, which could and should be unlocked for the benefit of PLC governance as a whole. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.